Well, welcome back to another edition of Pain Reframed. We couldn't be more honored to have Dr. Peter Grace, who's an assistant professor in the Department of Critical Care Research at UT Texas MD Answer Cancer Center. This is Pain Reframed. Peter has really focused his work on really trying to understand the mechanisms of pain and the role of peripheral immune cells and neuropathic pain, but also in this transition of acute to chronic pain and doing some incredible work looking at the effect of opioids and morphine substances on that movement into a more persistent pain pattern. Well, we're really excited to have Dr. Peter Grace on for this episode today. Dr. Grace, do you mind telling the listeners a little bit about uh, where you're at in your current research? I run a basic science lab and I'm interested in identifying the fundamental mechanisms of pain with the goal of trying to develop new treatments for treating chronic pain in particular. Where are you currently located at? I'm in Houston at the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center. And I've been here for about two years. Before that, I was in Linda Watkins lab at the University of Colorado Boulder. One of the things that piqued our interest, we saw in science news and in the media, some of the recent work you've been doing, looking at what morphine does in terms of pain reactivity and what's perhaps happening, you know, with post-surgical opioids. So could you kind of unpack that research you guys have been up to? Obviously, opioids are, are in the media a lot these days with the opioid crisis. One of the really surprising pieces of information that have come out of that with the increased attention is the long-term effects of opioids for treating chronic pain are really not known. And so that's both the good and bad. So we don't know whether they're effective long-term and we don't know whether they're doing anything bad long-term either. So that was the sort of question that we were interested in looking at. We developed a rat model. So we injured the, the rats. Uh, we, we injured the, the nerve um, that runs down the leg, the sciatic nerve in these rats. And then once that pain was established, um, similar to sciatica that people might experience, we then treated them with morphine, which is a, a commonly used opioid, for five days. We then looked at their pain thresholds for weeks to months afterwards. What we found was that the rats that were treated with um, just a salt water control, they recovered from that injury after about a month. But what we found in the rats that were treated with morphine is that the pain actually took twice as long to to resolve. So these rats were still in pain two months later. And this was a really quite a big finding because these Rats weren't being treated with morphine anymore. You know, they'd, they'd stopped months earlier, and yet the, the pain duration was doubled in this group. Wow. There's so much to unpack there, but what do you think the mechanisms behind that prolonged pain or persistent pain pattern in the, the treated group? The cells that we're really interested in are these cells in the spinal cord um, and the brain called glia, in particular microglia. They are classically thought to just be support cells for neurons. So neurons are obviously the cells that conduct the electrical activity that, that drives pain. But what we've learned over the last couple of decades is that these um, immune cells, microglia, do more than just support these neurons, but they actually contribute to neuronal signaling as well by releasing a whole lot of immune mediators that directly act on these neurons and then increase their excitability. It's now pretty well known that, that microglia are activated in the spinal cord after an injury to these peripheral nerves. 
and that they then release these excitatory mediators that then increase the activity in these pain pathways and then increase pain. What's more recent is that we've now also discovered that, that opioids also activate these cells. What we're potentially seeing here is that the combined challenge of both the injury and the, the morphine is, is sending these cells wild. And so they just remain activated for a much longer period of time, which is then translating to increased pain. You know, some of these models, again, in the animal, we can't, you know, directly jump into the human. But, you know, Jeff and I, I mean, we see many folks with persistent pain and we see that, you know, these folks that have been on opioids, even initially, often are struggling. And again, it's not like their pain is necessarily better. And it, it this is very fascinating because, you, you, you again, you're looking at folks with acute, or I should say animal, the rats with acute onset injury and seeing these changes happening that quickly. You were a bit surprised by that? Yeah. So I think it's kind of hard to extrapolate the time frame from a a rat which lives for about two years versus a human which might live about 80. You know, we're, we're looking almost two weeks after the the injury, but that's when the pain is really well established and, you know, is maybe considered subacute. But I think what's surprising is that at least in the rats, it didn't we didn't have to treat them for very long, only five days, and we, we saw this persistent pain emerging. As you track them out, I mean, do you see this hypersensitivity return back to baseline does that eventually happen? Or once they've been treated by some of these, these morphine substances, does it stay heightened for a, an extremely long period of time? In our rats, it does eventually resolve. So if they, they hadn't received morphine, it's taking them about a month or so. But if they do, it, it doubles that time. So it takes them a little over two months to recover. But I think the, the other sort of ex- exciting aspect to this is that I was talking about these glial cells before that are activated. What we also show is that if you inhibit their activity while the morphine is being administered, you don't interfere with the, the pain relief that's provided by that morphine, um, but you do prevent that long-term pain from really setting in. So I guess there is a, a silver lining to our researchers. There may be some way to, to mitigate this, this risk. What substances are used to inhibit that response? So we were focused on a couple of specific signaling pathways. So First, microglia express these receptors that are just looking for for something that shouldn't be there. Um, obviously, the the spinal cord in the brain is very sensitive to foreign invasion, so these microglia are on hyper alert to make sure that nothing is there that shouldn't be. And it seems like these receptors are detecting morphine as part of that system of something that shouldn't be there. And so these receptors are known as uh, toll-like receptors. And so that's the pathway that we've been, we've been targeting in microglia to try and uh, shut their signaling down. Peter, when you're looking at the hypersensitivity, are, are you measuring that just peripherally? Are you measuring that centrally in the brain as well? Or how are you guys getting a gauge on, on that measurement? It's a behavioral response. When we have injured the peripheral nerve that runs down one of the legs, the, the pores of these rats become pretty sensitive to touch, and so that's what we're measuring. So we just stimulate the, the rat's hind pores with these filaments that increase in thickness, and we're just looking for a withdrawal response. If the rat is responding to a really light touch, we interpret that as an increase in pain, and so that's, that's what we're, we're measuring. But to get to your question of whether this is peripheral or central, while the injury is peripheral, a lot of our inhibitors we're then administering um, over the spinal cord. 
So that's telling us that those the drive of the um, of the hypersensitivity is centrally mediated. Where do you see this going from here? And this is obviously a fascinating and maybe for a lot of folks paradoxical conclusion. You know, we talk a bit about hypersensitivity in the show. This is probably the most cellular we've ever gotten with it, which is phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Where do you see this going? What's kind of the next step, and what do we need to know next to be able to make some maybe clinical impressions and changes? I think first we we need to do some longitudinal studies to see in patients. Firstly, does morphine or or other opioids, do they have any long-term benefit? What we were surprised to see is that the studies really haven't gone out longer than a year. And obviously, a lot of people are are treated with uh, opioids for a much longer period of time than that. So I think that's really the first question is just, you know, what's what's happening to these to these people? You know, are they doing better? Are they doing worse? If so, you know, what what are the the symptoms that they're experiencing? Uh, you know, I'm, I'm hesitant to make the leap to say that what we're seeing in rats is happening in people, but you know, it, it could be happening in a subset. We've had recent guests, you know, looking at addiction and with with the rat model. Part of it was showing that in this case. If the rats were then exposed to, you know, environments where there are, you know, friends and family, if you will, around, their addictive behaviors decreased. And where I'm going with this is, have you guys thought it would be very interesting? You know, we, we see the harm, you know, some anywhere from one to four to one in three folks will go on to chronic use of an opioid given once. I mean, the statistics are just stunning what we've released on this the market with very little science behind it I, I would argue but my question is could you use that paradigm of injury to the sciatic nerve and use the same model with the opioid morphine type of intervention and compare it to a no intervention where the the extra the rat actually was able to exercise move probably in an environment of a, a positive environment that would perhaps mimic a you know a positive support structure and then look are there differences and is that something that you're remotely interested in or am I just out there chatting? <laughs> <laughs> Not at all. I think those are really interesting questions and ones that, that we don't do a good job at, I think, addressing in our in our animal studies. The rat's environment is really pretty sterile. They live in the same cage. They've got a few toys to play with and they often have a roommate, but it's just the same one. There's not a lot of variety. So I, I think that trying to understand you know, how social interaction and how exercise is going to influence all these these findings, I think is really important. And actually, we, we've we done a study that we published a couple of years ago looking at exercise, not in the combination with morphine, but just on the effect of pain alone. And we found that the, the rats that had had access to a, a running wheel in their cage and you know, they were running a lot, some of them up to 20 kilometers a week. If they then received a nerve injury, their pain was markedly diminished compared to the rats that had been sedentary for that period of time. So I think these you know, social interactions and, and exercise are going to have a huge effect. Yeah, that's fascinating. Did you all look at, at different dosages of the exercise or was it pretty much they had access to the to the wheel and they could kind of do whatever they saw fit? Yeah, we didn't dose it, but there was a fair bit of variability in how much the the rats chose to run. So the most active were 20 kilometers a week. The least active were um, maybe eight, but there was no correlation between how much pain they had and how much they had run previously. You know, all of them saw about the, the same benefit. 
But what we did see, though, is that the amount of time that they had access to the wheel was really important. So in our first study, we gave them access for six weeks. In a follow-up, we restricted that down to three weeks. In that case, we didn't see any protection at all. So it does suggest that you need to be active for, that these rats at least need to be active for a longer period of time in order to receive that protection. You know, going back to your study, I, I don't know if you're aware, in Spine published this month, there was a a study that looked at preoperative chronic opioid therapy, you know, as a risk factor for complications, readmissions, continued opioid use, and costs after lumbar fusion. And it's probably not surprising to you that that, you know, clearly was predictive. And it it seems, meaning that this chronic opioid therapy was definitely not helpful in terms of what the outcomes were going to look like. And it seems like this basic science research you're doing, coupled with what we're seeing out there, really, you guys are kind of getting at the mechanisms that might kind of explain what clearly is a miss out there in in clinical practice. Yeah, there's there's a couple of clinical studies like that that are emerging now showing that prior opioid use is a is a risk. And there was another one published a year or two ago showing that if patients who have cancer had previously been using opioids and then went on for chemotherapy they were at greater risk of the peripheral neuropathy that that sometimes occurs during treatment. So, yeah, I think these stories are are popping up all over the place. And I think that's what makes the basic science kind of interesting is that we can actually take the brains and the spinal cords of these animals and try and understand um, how this is all happening, doing what we can to either find alternatives or at least to mitigate the, the risks by finding other drugs that we can administer at the same time to to try and shut down these these pathways that are um, causing all the problems. Here, the basic science um, has a lot to offer. I'm not sure if, if you and Tim had touched on it earlier, but was there some sort of subgrouping of these, of these rats that got the morphine and had the hypersensitivity? At least what I've read, and maybe it's I haven't read the right stuff, it seems as though people are speaking of hypersensitivity in this very small subgroup of folks who wind up taking opioids and then unfortunately kind of wind up with this hypersensitivity and then wind up increasing their dose and kind of goes down this this sequela of, of an unfortunate pathway. But are you seeing that it was some of the rats that got the morphine that got hypersensitivity or were you pretty much seeing across the board that if the morphine was on board, you were seeing this overall hy- hypersensitivity? We see all of our rats developing the hypersensitivity. And I think that's just a limitation of doing these studies in animals with tightly controlled all the variables. They come from the same genetic background. They're housed all the same way. They're fed the same way. And you obviously have so much more variability in people that I think will then lead to these sort of subgroupings that you're talking about. You know, that's something else that that we need to be considering in our animal studies and trying to find ways, I think, to maybe try and better reflect the diversity that you see amongst people. How has this been received? So have you have you kind of brought, I'm sure you brought the findings up and colleagues and clinicians have, have discussed it. How have you found the information to be received so far? <laughs> you know, it's really mixed. I see the, the angry internet comments, <laughs> which are kind of interesting. But then, you know, as I, I talk to people, to other doctors in the in the clinic and you know they sort of say anecdotally that yeah this is this is what they see and in some cases there are protocols established in hospitals to try and wean people off of opioids before they're going in for elective surgery um, because they know that the outcomes are worse afterwards so it seems to, that you know this stuff isn't sort of written down and, and published formally but you know 
individual groups have have recognized this and uh, have adopted protocols at their hospitals to try and mitigate the risks that they're seeing. There certainly is something there. You're working primarily in the, the cancer center, but is it just that's where your home is? Or are you looking at, you know, post-cancer treatment pain? Is that some of your line of research now as well? Yeah, I'm continuing on with the same line of research that I've been doing. You know, so this cancer center is is my home, but they're, um, they're not too fussy about whether I work on cancer or not. But we, we have started bringing in some other cancer-related models, like the, the chemotherapy-induced uh, neuropathy that I was referring to before. Interesting. I'm going to ask a personal question. I mean, if you or a loved one ended up with acute low back pain and sciatica and was offered oxycodone or some other one of these morphine-like substances, would you comment on what your thoughts are? I think I, I would tread carefully, but at the moment, there, there aren't really good alternatives for opioids. And Opioids are effective at, at treating some types of pain, and I don't think we should ignore that. The other thing I would say that is that not treating pain is, is not an option. Obviously, it can be unbearable for some people, but there's also research out there showing that undertreated pain can also lead to chronic pain as well. Treatment is important. I would tread carefully when it comes to opioids, and you'd really want to be pretty certain that it was actually doing something for your pain but I'm not a medical doctor, and so I you know, would leave the specifics to a discussion that people would have with their own healthcare provider. Well, I appreciate that comment there. And Peter, would you mind telling the listeners where to find you and your research, and if there's any social media outlets to follow you on, that would be great. So I have a, a lab website. It's uh, gracelab.org, where you can see some of the research that we've done, and that's got a link to some of the papers as well as some of the write-ups of what we've talked about today. Great. Wow, what a great conversation with Dr. Peter Grace. You know, it's that kind of basic science information I think sometimes we all need just to understand, you know, what people are going through. When our patients are seemingly in more pain than we think they should be, it can be hard to be empathetic. But if we understand that What's going on on a, on a cell level is is very real and very explainable. I think that can increase our our empathy and our ability to really you know meet that patient where they are and understand where they are and then bring them forward. So I think that this is going to be wonderful. You know, we had a chance to chat with Peter offline and looking forward to you know connecting with him hopefully numerous times over the next couple of years to continue to track the basic science, the foundational science while we're tracking the clinical side of things. So wonderful conversation. Thanks everyone for being here. As always, thank you to our sponsor, International Spine and Pain Institute. Their website is ispinstitute.com. They have a ton of great things coming up. If you're looking forward to next year already, make sure you're thinking about the Align Conference in March. Just a, a wonderful list of speakers. Adrian, always going to be a presence there. Greg Lehman's going to be there. Karen Litzy's going to be there. Just a ton of people that, that are going to be really fun to listen to and engage with. So make sure you're tracking those folks. Tim and I are always on social media. Pain Reframe Facebook group is more active than ever. So please jump over on that. Thanks everyone for being here. We're having a blast and we'll see you next time on the next episode of Pain Reframed. Pain Reframed is brought to you by our sponsor, the International Spine and Pain Institute. Check out their transformative pain science programming at ispinstitute.com.